open up your Bibles to Genesis 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one in the pew in front of you. We'll be on page 12. Thank you all for uh, your um, prayers for our family as we were on vacation last week. We were in Washington, D.C. for family vacation. It was really fun. We figured we walked about 10 miles a day for seven days, and so I I feel good. (laughs) Um, But good to be back. Um, If you've gotten to Genesis 18, as always, we're going we're gonna to do some Q&R at the end. So um, you can jump on slido.com, type in RevCDA, and, and uh, put in a question. We'll take a look at those at the end. Let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, you are, uh, you are good to us. We've, uh, we've spent this morning so far singing your praises, being reminded of, of your faithfulness to us, your graciousness, and your compassion. And I just pray that you would continue to um, open our eyes to your character, um, that we can trust you. We read your word this morning as we um, learn lessons from the lives of your people that have gone before us, I just pray that you would speak by the power of your spirit, um, that you would meet us here as individuals who are all wrestling with different things on a, on a journey all our own, and as a community of followers of Jesus in this city, um, I pray that you would uh, uh, guide our path. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. So my friend, um, Victor Borchard, is a, uh, one of our provisional elders. He pastors a church in uh, Medford, Oregon. And um, his, his kind of gifting is that he is really good with um, sayings and quips and uh, mantras. Anytime there's a, a, an issue to be discussed in the elder board, He's got like a phrase that he can just rattle off that's easy to remember about how to deal with that situation. And, and when, he talks about <clears throat> when he talks about training people, he always says this. He always says, I do, we do, you do. You ever heard that? That's a, a way of understanding bringing someone into a process. First of all, um, you're going to watch me do it. And then we're going to do it together and then you're going to do it, and I'm going to watch. I do, we do, you do. And as we've been working through Genesis, we, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning this morning and, and think about humanity's original mission, that, that we were called to rule and subdue the earth, to apprentice under Yahweh, to learn the wisdom that we needed to do that, to rule, to lead. And that would have been great, except the story takes this terrible turn in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve think they know better than God, and that they could take wisdom for themselves and bypass the process that God wanted to take them through to get that wisdom. And the fallout from that is extensive. And so as we've been looking through the Abraham story, we've, we've seen that kind of Abraham's, uh, God is starting over with Abraham. 
He's, Abraham and Sarah have become this kind of new Adam and Eve. The, the plan of God is continuing with this couple. And in this chapter, in chapter 18, God is going to begin to teach Abraham and Sarah a lesson about his character and who he is and what he's like, and, and that should spill over into who they are and how they subdue and rule and lead their families. And the lesson that, that they're going to learn involves two subjects. The first one is Yahweh's blessing, and the second one is Yahweh's justice. So we're going to talk about blessing this morning, and we're going to talk about justice. But before we get there, um, chapter 18 and chapter 19 are kind of a unit in, in Genesis. And it's kind of the prelude and then the actual story of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll take a look at chapter 19 next week. But this unit is framed around hospitality. And you might think, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, 18 is a story of Abraham and Sarah exercising hospitality to some strangers. And chapter 19 is a story about the citizens of Sodom failing to exercise hospitality to some strangers. And that's not the the main point of what we're going to talk about today, but it is interesting that hospitality features so strongly in this section. And it's actually a pretty major theme in the biblical story. Being someone who opens your home and expends your resources on the behalf of others is a big part of what it means to be a righteous person in the Bible. And I think sometimes we tend to think of hospitality as kind of one of those minor league virtues, like, like it's fine, but it's not that big a deal. But it's really not. It's a pretty major theme of Scripture. In Romans 12, Paul writes, um, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. And hospitality doesn't mean like, um, you know, just being good at throwing dinner parties. We, sometimes we think of hospitality and we think of like, you know, Martha Stewart and, and place settings and, and that sort of thing. Hospitality is a Greek word, philozenia, uh, and that word means love of strangers or love of foreigners. The idea of, of loving the stranger is hospitality is in fact, so important to the storyline of the Bible that it is the example that Jesus uses to illustrate the second most important commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that institutes this discussion about from his enemies, like, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's found in Luke 10. And we don't have time to get into it, but it's a story about loving a foreigner, even an enemy who um, is at odds with you socially and culturally. And we'll get into the meat of this text in a minute, but at this moment in our national conversation, there's just a, there's a lot of talk about uh, what we call immigration. I don't know if you follow the news, but it's been in my news sources quite a bit. And, and there's really two competing values at play in the immigration discussion nationally. And, and one is love of security, and the other is love of stranger. And those two things 
neither one is bad, neither one is wrong. But if you're someone who finds that your love of security and the the positions that it leads you to leaves you no place for the love of stranger in your heart, I would encourage you to seek the Lord because I think we're out of balance there. Not to get too political, but I don't see any reason why we should not be able to have a country that's secure and also provide welcome to the many people that come to our nation to pursue a better life for themselves. This is what it means to have hospitality, to love a stranger. Uh, If you'd like to dig into that idea more, there's a really great website called the Evangelical Immigration Table that has laid out a really thoughtful biblical theology of what a reasonable immigration system would look like. Another verse in the New Testament about hospitality, Hebrews 13 says, don't neglect to show hospitality for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. And this is probably the story in Genesis 18 that the author of Hebrews is thinking about when he writes that because this is exactly what happens to Abraham. So Abraham and Sarah are going to get some training. They're going to learn some wisdom this morning. And why are they going to get that? Well, we're going to skip down to verse 17. The Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. See, part of the reason God has chosen Abraham and Sarah is because he wants them to learn about God and then pass along what they learn to their children and this nation that they're going to found. Adam and Eve are stepping into this new role, or Abraham and Sarah are stepping into a new role of this new Adam and Eve, and they need wisdom, and God is going to provide it for them. So back to the top of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to pair it. Then Abraham took curds and milk, as well as the calf he'd prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. So I've I've mentioned this before, but the author of Genesis is really subtle and he's really brilliant when he uses words and phrases to get us to think about things that we've already read. And in this passage, he's doing that. He's getting us to think about the Garden of Eden. And he's getting us to think about the story of God coming to Adam and Eve and seeing that they've eaten the fruit from the tree, that they've taken wisdom for themselves, and the disappointment and the guilt and the fall that happens. But this story is a reversal of that. Notice that this story takes place in the midst of some trees. 
Yahweh comes to Abraham in the heat of the day. That's very similar to what we read in Genesis 3.8. This is the NIV. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That might seem like a coincidental phrase, but it's meant to remind us, oh, this is a very similar story. God is coming to these people. There's also a parallel with the calf being good and the meal being eaten under a tree. The couple is caught off guard by the appearance of Yahweh and they scramble to prevent themselves, just like in Genesis 3. In this story, these are are all good things. Like I said, it's a reversal, but they're connected to the negative aspects of Genesis 3. And in this story, instead of usurping the authority of God and trying to take wisdom for themselves, the man and the woman sit under the tree with Yahweh and they learn wisdom from him. The narrator tells us that the Lord appeared, Yahweh, but Abraham, he sees three men. And it's, un- it's unclear at this point if he understands who he is speaking to, but he goes out of his way to provide an elaborate meal for his guests. So what is Yahweh here to teach them? What wisdom are they here to learn? The first thing is Yahweh's blessing. Look at verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? The Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. I really appreciate the marriage dynamic in this section. Because if you, if you were here last week, Brian taught and, through 17, and Abraham, he, he knows this already, right? Like, he found out that Sarah was going to have a baby last chapter. He just didn't tell his wife. I don't know, husbands. Um, do you resonate with that? I've been, in, I've been in situations where um, I've worked in, in fairly good-sized organizations and, and had really uh, profound relationships with my coworkers, and we'll have some coworkers over for dinner, and then they'll start talking about me, and my wife will be like, I didn't know that about him. How interesting. And later on, she'll be like, I really hate it when you don't tell me what's going on in your life, and I have to learn it from other people. Um, I'm, just, I'm just grateful that Abraham is, is like me, and I... <laughs> that we're both growing together to be more proactive in sharing details with our wives. But Sarah, she, she has a really realistic view of herself here. Uh, the, the CSB says she's past the age of childbearing. It, it more literally reads, the way of women had ceased for Sarah. She knows enough about human biology to know that she's not going to have a baby. And she's even got questions about Abraham's ability at this point. And so she laughs. She thinks it's, it's absurd. 
And when we think about God's blessing, I want to share two basic categories for us this morning. The first category is the category of providence. Providence means that, that God in general just cares for his people, right? You go to work, you pay your mortgage, but when you get a raise, you thank the Lord for that, right? God's looking out for you. And that's true. Like everything that we have that's good in our lives comes as a blessing from God. James 1 says, every perfect, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, maybe you worked hard to get that raise. Maybe, you know, your company did great and they had extra money to give away. Does that happen? Um, But you can still say, you know what? Thank you, Lord, because you have provided for us. Joanna and I, uh, about a year ago, um, she had some some allergy testing done. And... uh, We thought everything was fine until probably six months later, we got a bill, like $1,500 that we weren't expecting. And uh, we got the bill. It was the entire bill because the insurance didn't pay. And the reason the insurance didn't pay is they just, they never responded. They, the, the medical office sent the bill and the insurance just didn't do anything about it. Uh, and then to top it all off, it was an insurance that we no longer had. We had switched providers later. And so then we, you know, like we called the insurance and had to convince them that we actually used to have a policy with them and find all that paperwork. It was a big hassle. And they were like, oh yeah, we never got that bill. We would have paid it if we'd gotten it. Uh, Tell them to send it to this address. And so we, you know, talked to the medical provider and said, oh, you need to send it to this address. And and so they said, okay, we'll send it. And a month goes by and and then we get another bill saying, hey, now this is past due. Like, I thought you were going to take care of this. And, oh no, they never responded. And, and it, we, we worked and worked and worked to get these two people at these two organizations to like talk to each other and they, they never would. And then finally, after frustratingly messing with this for months, we called the medical provider to get an update because we hadn't heard in a while. And, and they just said, oh yeah, your, your, your account is, is zero. There's, there's no balance due. And uh, we haven't heard anything since. <laughs> and jo- Joanna told me this week, don't tell that story and tempt fate. Like, that's not how fate works. <laughs> like, I don't believe in fate. So, uh, fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> praise God for that, right? But that's not a miracle. That's, I'm sure, you know, my guess is they realized that they screwed up their billing process so badly that they were just going to drop the whole thing. It wasn't worth it to keep pushing on us for it. Awesome. But miracles are different. Richard Purdell says, a miracle is an event in which God temporarily makes an exception to the natural order of things to show that God is acting. This can be an exception to natural laws like Jesus walking on the water. That's not the way water works. Or it can be statistical laws. There's a story where uh, Jesus and Peter owe some tax money. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, go take a fishing pole, throw it out into the water. The first fish you catch, pull it up. There's going to be a coin in the fish's mouth and it's going to be enough to pay our taxes. That doesn't really break any laws of the universe, 
but it's pretty statistically unlikely that that could ever happen. Miraculous. I did some, some reading this the week on miracles. Um, there's a, if you're interested, there's a book by Craig Keener called Miracles Today. Keener is a really respected New Testament scholar. Um, he does really serious work in Acts, especially that's his specialty. But he has a whole 300-page book of miracles, things that God has done that cannot be explained. Um, cancer being cured, blindness being healed, skeletal deformities being fixed in a moment. Uh, one story uh, c- kind of connects to our story this morning. A woman whose fallopian tubes had been removed due to multiple eptopic pregnancies, getting pregnant and having a child, food being multiplied, storms calmed. God sometimes does miraculous things. He does things that can't be explained, that are outside the laws of nature or the laws of statistical probability. Many of you, I'm sure, have stories of miraculous things happening in your life. And maybe, maybe you're someone who loves that kind of thing. Maybe you get really energized by stories of God working. Or maybe you're here and you're kind of skeptical of miracles. A friend of mine I talked to, um, I saw him this week and he goes, you know what? I think my back was healed last week. I was complaining about, I've had this back injury for for months and months and I've been unable to like shake it. And I talked to somebody at church and they laid hands on me and prayed for me. And like instantly I felt better and I haven't had any pain ever since. And he goes, I tell people and they're like, are you sure, really? Did that happen? And some of us are just kind of built that way, right? We're skeptical of the miraculous. And this is where Sarah's at. Sarah laughs. I'm not going to have a baby. It's not going to happen. But her comment, I think, gets at a deeper reality. She says, she says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? See, what I hear in Sarah's comment is not so much that that's impossible, but that's impossible for me. There's no way this wonderful thing could happen to me. Can you feel how how personal that is? That's too good to be true. I wonder how many of us live our lives with that posture. You know, that's a a safety mechanism, right? There's a... um, popular saying, expect nothing and you will never be disappointed. I assume that, that Sarah has come to terms with the disappointment of, and the shame of not being able to have a child for the last 90 years. 90 years. As far as I'm aware, there's only one person in this room that knows how long 90 years is. <laughs> On top of that, there was that mess with Hagar and Sarah 13 years, or Hagar and Ishmael 13 years ago, and, and Sarah is still dealing with the consequences of that. And this stranger shows up and prophesies that she's going to have a baby next year. And just imagine opening up all those wounds. She laughs. 
She soothes, she soothes the pain that she feels through humor. And this is a, the point when a lot of scholars think that Abraham and Sarah are clued into who this visitor is. He calls out Sarah, who is behind him in the tent, talking to herself. And he says, is anything impossible for Yahweh? Is anything impossible for God? This is the first piece of wisdom that Abraham and Sarah need to learn. Nothing is impossible for God. Even there, 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 there is no natural way that this 90-year-old woman can conceive a child. God will make it happen. And this is a lesson that we need to learn too. That God is working out his plan in the world. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a part of that plan. Jesus says in John 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. See, God intends to bless you. And that doesn't mean that God is a genie, that he's going to give you everything you want. That doesn't mean that your life is not going to have sorrow or pain or suffering. In fact, it's promised that you will. God wouldn't be a good parent to us if he just indiscriminately gave us everything we asked for. But what is it in us that stops us from believing that impossible circumstances in our lives won't get better? What stops us from asking in faith for healing, for provision, for wisdom, for relationships to be mended, for loved ones to come to faith in Christ? Those are all miraculous things that God is in the business of doing. And we're funny people. We, we, if we call ourselves Christians, we're saying that our lives are ordered around a man who didn't have a human father, who never did anything wrong, who walked on water, multiplied food, healed incurable diseases and disabilities, was killed as a criminal, but physically rose from the dead three days later, appeared to his followers multiple times, ascended into heaven, and will physically return one day to set up a global kingdom in a renewed, perfect world without sin and death. But then we live our lives in a way where we believe he doesn't have any power to make a difference in the challenges that we experience. We are so foolish when we believe that God cannot or will not intervene in our lives. But look how gentle God is here. He doesn't shame Sarah. He doesn't even really rebuke her when she lies to him. I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. God has this gentle forbearance and patience. And it's just a reminder for us, if in the midst of your sin, in your doubt, in the shame, if you hear a voice of condemnation, that's not the voice of Jesus. Jesus is going to call you out. Do a study sometime in the Gospels of how many times he tells the disciples, oh, you of little faith. Like he's going to do that but he's going to do it from a posture of love and care for us and encouragement to believe. It's my prayer that he is shaping us into people that see both the inability of our situations and at the same time believe that God can and does the impossible for his people. That's the first lesson that Abraham and Sarah needed to begin to learn. So what's the second one? Look at verse 16. 
The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. God is talking to himself. And a couple of weeks ago, I, I talked about the idea of, of two Yahwehs, how throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's, there's often um, God is presented in, in two different places or at, through two different mouthpieces at once. And we see it here too. Yahweh talks about himself in this passage in the first and the third person in the same sentence. It's this precursor to our understanding of the Trinity that the Jewish people had prior to Christ. And this is why God is teaching Abraham these lessons. He expects Abraham to pass them along to his descendants, that they would know the character of God through Abraham's teaching. And this is a, this is a challenge to us as parents. If you're a parent in here, are you teaching your children about who God is, about what God is like, or are you just teaching them to behave? It's, I find it really easy to just make rules that make my life easier, right? Like, don't do that. Don't talk to me there. Don't touch that thing. Just be good. Not that that's a bad thing, but are we teaching our children the character of Christ, who God is and how he loves us? Verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people, righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? What is Abraham doing here? He's, he's bartering, right? A lot of cultures, if you've ever been to the, the Middle East or um, Africa or even in, in, in Asia, they, they, they barter for the sale of goods. We even do it for some odd reason when we buy cars. Like that's like the only category we're like, well, would you take a thousand less? You know, like that's, that's bartering, if you ever sell something on Craigslist or, or Facebook Marketplace, it's got something for 100 bucks, and then somebody says, will you take seven and a bag of Doritos? Like, no, I won't. It's $100. A lot of trauma around Facebook Marketplace for me. Um, but but so, what, so Abraham is bartering. So what's God's move? Abraham goes, you wouldn't destroy the city for 50, would you? And God should go, well, 50, how about 200? Because that's how bartering works, right? The first person low balls, and then the second one responds, and you get closer and closer and closer to the answer somewhere in the middle. But that's not what God does. Verse 26, the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. This is unexpected. This is not what Abraham thinks he's doing. 
I recently bought some uh, used audio video equipment and um, it was kind of a, they were selling a whole lot of stuff and I just wanted a few things and I kind of pulled it together and I said, you know, how much for this? And that guy goes, uh, just, you know, make me an offer. And I told him a price and he goes, yeah, sure. And I thought, shoot, I should have offered less. <laughs> Always offer less. But this is what happens. Abraham, I don't think, I'm reading between the lines a little bit. I don't think Abraham knows what to do now. Like he thought that God was going to counter, but God goes, yeah, I won't, I won't destroy the city. So then Abraham goes, okay, uh, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Like, no, I won't. Then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there. I will not do it on account of 40. Let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. I will not do it if I find 30 there. Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. I will not destroy it on account of 20. Let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. I will not destroy it on account of 10. Yahweh is teaching Abraham a lesson about justice. Abraham starts with a question, almost an accusation. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? He thinks he's possibly chastising God. Won't you do what is just? He's challenging God. But with every question, God challenges Abraham's understanding of his perfect justice and how it's better than even Abraham's idea of justice. Abraham is learning that Yahweh's justice is good and right in a way that he can trust. He's saying in in his mission to destroy this wicked city, there is 0% chance of collateral damage. You know that term in in military operations, it's, it's a... Um, it's a discussion, like what, how much collateral damage are we willing to suffer? If we've got, we've got the bad guy and we're going to blow him up, how many innocent lives can we afford to kill in this operation? In Yahweh's government, no one gets undeserved punishment. Yahweh has a better handle on what justice looks like than Abraham does. And this is also a lesson that we need to learn. Sometimes we ask the question, why is God letting them get away with that? We're incensed and angry about the injustice that we see, and we think God is not doing anything about it. And then other times we look at someone and we go, like, how could God possibly judge this person? He he would be unjust for doing that. And we make ourselves like Abraham is trying to make himself the, the judge of God. Psalm 33 says, for the the word of the Lord is right and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. To Yahweh is not fickle and erratic. He doesn't just fly off the handle. The very concept of justice flows out of who he is in his very being. And the question for us is, do do we believe that? 
Psalm 119 verse 20 says, I am continually overcome with longing for your judgment. Is that you? Or do you just, you just yearn for God's justice? Or are you kind of offended because you think he gets it wrong? When you, when you read through parts of the scriptures that you go like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. Not that it shouldn't make you uncomfortable, but God shouldn't have done that. When you think about the kingdom of Christ and who is rejected from it, do we believe that God is wise enough to figure that out? Or does he need our stamp of approval? What about that child in that village on that island that never heard about Jesus? Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? What about children who die too young or adults with disabilities who are prevented from a rational understanding of the gospel? Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? See, God's justice exceeds Abraham's expectations. And I fully believe that the day we stand together in Christ's kingdom, his justice will exceed our expectations as well. We will look around and understand that everything is the way it's supposed to be. And there was not a single miscarriage of justice in the world. See, these, these two lessons are crucial for our understanding of our position in Christ. And, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm just excited that you're here, that you chose to worship with us. Um, but whether you're a Christian or not, when we run up into the categories of righteousness and wickedness, we all fall into the wicked category. Paul says in Romans 3, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. See, righteousness or justice, those two words are pretty synonymous in the Bible. It's an all or nothing standard. Either you meet the standard or you don't. Paul again in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From a young age, as soon as you are capable, you begin to break God's law. You go against the grain of the universe. You put yourself out of sync with your creator. And it is effectively impossible to be righteous. The disciples understand this in Matthew 19. Jesus says to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? If, if you can't buy your way into the kingdom, then who possibly could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Yahweh asked Sarah, is anything impossible for God? The answer is no, Jesus says. Even the impossible, the salvation of sinners, is possible for him. So how does this God who is committed by his very being to doing justice also bring about the impossible salvation of sinners? A little later in in our, uh, 
in our book, about halfway through, there's this another miraculous birth. There's a young virgin named Mary who carries a child who is the eternal son of God, Yahweh in human flesh. And he lives out of his being as the God-man, a totally righteous human, and also allows the power of darkness to arrest him and crucify him. And on that cross, he takes our wickedness on himself, becomes that sin that we have committed and puts it to death in what seems like an impossible act of justice. Listen to Abraham's rebuke of Yahweh again. You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? See, the paradox of the cross is that in order to save the wicked from a just punishment of death, Yahweh himself, the only truly righteous one, steps in and is killed on our behalf. Justice is the foundation of his throne, the psalm says. The judge of the whole earth will do what is just. But he will also do the impossible to save us, wicked sinners who deserve death. And this is good news, right? The impossibility of our salvation is affected through his mercy, his grace, but also his justice. And for some of us this morning, if you're not a Christian, it's an invitation to trust in both God's justice and his blessing through Christ and to rejoice in it with the rest of us who have experienced that good news. Let's do a little Q&R. Both Abraham and Sarah laughed about the promise of Sarah having a child, but God only calls out Sarah. What makes Sarah's response worse than Abraham? I don't know that I would say that Sarah's response is worse than Abraham's. I mean, God calls out Abraham in chapter 17 too. I mean, he, in, in chapter 17, verse 19, God just says, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. Um, I think in this instance, the fact that Sarah is not present, she's in the tent, uh, she's laughing to herself, is an indication of the character of the person prophesying. And it's, it's a way for Abraham and Sarah to understand who they're talking to that isn't the same in, in chapter 17. So I don't think... I don't think Sarah's response is worse. I think they're both um, in need of, of education in both chapters. What was the purpose of making that statement on immigration? Not sure if anyone else experienced this, but I found it incredibly confusing and distracting. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Um, because I think it's important to have a perspective on how the scriptures um, inform our lives outside of just our own personal uh, piety with Christ. Um, the, the way we live our lives, the way we think about our citizenship, about our country, about our um, choices as we vote, as we discuss, um, they're informed by the scriptures. 
Immigration is a hot button topic, and it is a topic that has to do with hospitality. Um, I brought it up because, like I said, these chapters have to do with hospitality. And when we are thinking through the idea of what does it look like to be a nation that is um, uh, guided by biblical Christian principles, uh, that's a really important framework to have. How does God see the stranger? How does God see the foreigner? How should we be understanding people who are looking for a better life outside of our nation? And there's a lot of answers for that, and there's a lot of policy uh, that needs to be discussed for that at a, at a political level. But as Christians, we shouldn't default to uh, what our political a party of choice thinks. We should default to what God thinks. And oftentimes what God thinks is very different than what both of our major political parties think. And um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and, and the problem, I think, sometimes, and, and, and we'll move on, but I think one of the things that causes tension around these kind of things is we see something like immigration as a political issue that is kind of outside the bounds of what we're doing as the body of Christ. But I would, if that is you, I would challenge you to think through how you would respond if I took some time to talk about abortion. Because abortion is also a political issue, but it's one that the church has decided that we care about. And for many people, there are a lot of other political issues that we've just decided we don't care about. And I think that's a mistake. I think we should be people that have a holistic view of who we are as Christians, and that view should come from the scriptures, and it should inform everything that we think about, uh, not just as individuals or families, but as American citizens. So that's all I'll say about that. Who is crying out to the Lord on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah if there, is no, there are no righteous people in the city? Um, well, Lot lives in the city. We'll learn about him and his, his righteousness as, much as, as far as it goes next week. Um, and it, it's possible, I mean, this isn't in the text, but it's possible that Sodom and Gomorrah are using their power and their influence to harm other people outside the city. Another border question. We've got, I believe that everyone in this room loves the people trying to cross our border, but it is, is it so wrong to care about having a legal and safe system for them? Oh, absolutely not. We should have a legal and safe system for them. 100%. Should we weep for the death of the wicked like Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, when Osama bin Laden was killed, should the church have responded? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think we should always weep for the death of the wicked. I think God always um, weeps for the death of anyone because his heart is that we would all come to repentance and be saved. And, and when someone um, pursues wickedness to the point that there's no turning back for them, and, and that's, that's not a decision for that, us, that's a decision for God. That's a terribly sad thing. Um, I think God himself in, in the book of Ezekiel says that he doesn't, he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
Why do you think the church is so divided by what it means to love our enemy when biblical justice and mercy seem so clear? Oh, there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> we are profoundly shaped by our culture, whatever that culture is, however you want to define it. You're, you're profoundly shaped by the family you grow up in, whether you follow in their footsteps or rebel against them because you don't like it. You're profoundly shaped by your educational system, um, by the people that you hang out with, by your work environment, um, by the media you consume. And I don't know, I can't say anything specifically about this body of believers here, but nationally, statistically, Christians don't really engage with the scriptures. They don't really know the Bible. We don't spend time really seeking the heart of God as a people nationwide. And um, yeah, it, if you study the scriptures about loving your enemies, doing justice, um, offering mercy, it's, it's hard to ignore the heart of God there. Um, and the church in our country honestly has a lot to learn from uh, the church around the world. Um, Christians in other countries often have a much better read on the heart of God than we do. Um, and that's unfortunate. And we need to be people that push back against that statistic, be students of the word, and um, really, just like Abraham and Sarah, learn the character of God. Is it ever okay to unjustly hurt an individual in order to protect the larger community? How are such decisions to be made in the church or family or society? I don't think it's ever okay to do anything unjustly. So, I mean, I... Like, God never does anything unjustly. So, we should be people that strive to be like God. There's kind of a, like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few vibe to this question. Um, But I think... God always acts in perfect justice. And while we might not be capable of doing that, we shouldn't abandon trying. <laughs> okay, last one. When you're speaking of God's justice, do you think the book of Revelation and the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments actually happen? Um, it's kind of a loaded question. Yeah, I mean, in, in, depending on how you interpret the book, yeah, I think so. I don't know that. I don't know that there is consent, a good consensus on how exactly to interpret Revelation. But overall, at the end of days, Jesus Christ is going to return and destroy his enemies. This is the whole background for why we pursue peace. In Romans, Paul says, well, let me read it. I'll find it. Then we'll be done. We can sing. In Romans, Paul says, in chapter 12, way back here. If possible, no, back up. Back up to 16, 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So the whole motivation for us to lay down violence and operate in peace and love towards our neighbors and our enemies is the fact, going back to Genesis 18, that the Lord of all the earth will do what is just. He will right every wrong. Every single sin and wickedness that's done against you or done against this community or done against the world at large will either be paid for by the blood of Christ or will be paid for by the one who commits that wickedness in God's perfect justice. So, that's enough for today. If you have more questions about any of this, I know we talked about some stuff that's kind of controversial. I'd love to chat some more with you. But we're going to take communion. Um, Abraham welcomes the stranger to his tent with a meal. He shows hospitality. He, he loves the foreigner by breaking bread with him. Many years later, Jesus breaks bread at a meal that he had prepared for those who would come to him. And all of us, all of us were foreigners. All of us were strangers to the goodness of God. We lived outside of his kingdom and we were invited in by King Jesus. And that invitation continues to go out and has gone out for 2,000 years. And this morning, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus' invitation to be a part of his community, his family, you've put your hope and your trust in Christ. I just invite you as we sing to come and take the bread and the cup. Take it back to your seat and just marvel at his justice and his impossible blessing and that he gave you life when you deserve death. Our uh, prayer rugs are available if you want to change the posture of your body as you worship. Uh, Feel free to sit or stand as we sing together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.